So I was reading an old diary entry today, and this caught my eye. February 16th, 2003. So I've been unofficially, officially offered a job at Newsday, pending a background check and physical. The job would take me away from sports and back to features, where I got my start in Nashville. I'd be writing lengthy features, mostly on my own ideas. It could be cool. And yet, the emotions are mixed. Sports Illustrator was my dream, and I made it. Now, after only six years, am I supposed to leave? I worked so hard to get here, to write with the best. And now, I'm going to give that up for a newspaper? I think so. I'm sick of sports, or at least sports at SI. I want to interview people who want to be interviewed. I want variation. Well, all these years later, I left. And it was a risk, and I was terrified, and I was unsure, and I didn't know if it would ruin me. And sitting here in 2022, I can honestly say it was the best move of my life. So take risks. We only get one shot at this. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Singing Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Beth Warren, my long-ago colleague at the Nashville Tennesseean, who now covers the opioid crisis and drug cartels for the Courier-Journal in Louisville. This is episode number 280. Let's sing some yay. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, Beth. I was just saying that I probably haven't spoken to you since the year 1996 when I left the Tennessee and we were co-workers at the Tennessee and we were about the same age. And I was thinking like, you have to be honest on this podcast. I was such a douchebag in my time at the Tennessee and I was such yeah, a, a little bit. I was right. I was really an asshole, right? Just a little bit. I loved you. Yeah. You were a pain in the ass, but I loved you. Yeah. I mean, I was too. You and I both could get into some trouble. So, um, no, I mean, you had a good heart and that was what counted. But yeah, you definitely, you know, you could get into some trouble, but so could I. My mouth got me in trouble and still does, to be honest. So I want to get into your current career. But when we were at the Tennessean, I got there in 1994. Uh, I was straight out of University of Delaware. I was full of swagger and cockiness and blah, blah, blah. And I remember getting there. I don't think I remember you getting in a lot of trouble. Were you a pain in the ass as a cub reporter as well? I'm still a pain in the ass now. You can ask my editors. I mean, I remember I played a joke on you and I sent you to the editor's office. Tell me the story, please. Oh, crap. Remember that um, when you thought you were in trouble and you were rushing to Sutherland's office? I uh, manipulated that hoax. Wait. So I was kind of the behind the scenes, like conniving person, you know, but Wait, I had so this little innocent face. So people didn't always suspect it was me. Wait, so Frank Sutherland was the editor of the Tennessean. And yeah, uh, and you thought you were in a lot of trouble and you were rushing and you were pacing back and forth. But in my defense, I was getting you back because you had done something to me. I don't remember what it was, but in my defense, you drew first blood and I was just punching your back. But I did feel a little guilty because you're about to piss your pants you were pretty scared the look on your face makes me think i didn't confess i guess i should have i might have blocked this out of my memory all right so this is what i'm fascinated by here i am i'm at the tennessee inn i leave it's 1996 beth warren you know we're friends at the tennessee inn goodbye i don't talk to you since literally since 1996 though we're facebook friends and here we are it's 2022 you write for the courier journal in louisville and you freaking cover drug cartels, which is insane. So yeah, I just, it is. 
Serious question. Take as long as you want. How did this happen? Yeah, it, it is definitely uh, weird. And if you want to add another layer of weirdness, I'm actually working from Nashville. My father has dementia, so they're letting me work from home. So it's kind of strange. I'm working in Nashville on a Louisville project about Mexican cartels. It is very strange, I admit. Um, basically, I was covering um, Louisville was having a, um, you know, an epicenter for the opioid crisis. At one point, we were losing over a, an average of a person per day to a fatal overdose. So I kind of jumped in and was helping um, senior reporter Laura Unger on the opioid crisis. So we we were writing about that like solidly for like three, four years, something like that. So basically, um, I had... Um, I did this story on this family, the Cooleys, who lost their son. And then they were asking me, where are all these drugs coming from? Why? What? Because their son died of fentanyl. And they're like, we didn't even know what fentanyl was and where is it coming from? And so I just went to the DEA and I'm like, you know, parents are asking me, where is all the fentanyl in Louisville, Kentucky coming from? And so there, that's what kind of launched the whole thing. Um, they were talking to me about you know, Mexican cartels and CJ and G and El Mencho. And I'm like, who the hell is that? Um, are we allowed to curse on this show? <laughs> we a hundred percent are. Anyways. Um, I was like, who's that? I had not heard of him, honestly. Um, and they're because I was asking about Sinaloa and they're like, you're asking about the past. You need to ask about the future. You need to ask about CJ and G El Mencho. That's who's gaining ground, you know, because everybody knew about Sinaloa. So um, basically I, it's a long story, but I ended up go convincing the DEA to take me to Mexico in 2019 to learn about El Mencho. And so went to Mexico city, Guadalajara. And, um, then I launched into a nine month project on all I was doing is looking at CG and G in my mind, I was going to do one project, one and done. Right. And go back to harm reduction and that kind of thing. So what happened is uh, we ended up doing a 28 page special section just on the cartel. It was like a little cartel newspaper. Um, and part of it is in the DEA um, museum in, uh, in Washington. And basically that somebody, it caught somebody's attention and they offered me a grant to continue this kind of reporting. And so I fast forward 2022 um, and I was recently renewed for two more years. So basically myself and my partner, Carol Suarez in Mexico City, we um, are just continuing to look at issues and the infiltration of cartel drugs across the U.S. Because I think a lot of Americans just think it's at the border. It's in maybe L.A. and New York, the big cities. But it's not in Nashville. It's not in little towns in Alabama, but it is, you know. And so that's kind of what we're doing is trying to explain that if you live in a little bitty town, like literally there was there is a town in North Carolina that has more llamas than cops and the cartel had people there. And so what we're trying to say is if you're worried about your teenager right now, what they're facing on the street, that is dictated by people in Mexico. They dictated, they switched, they are brilliant. They actually switched this crisis um, around from heroin, from uh, pain pills to heroin, heroin to synthetic opioids.
they decided. They put the product out there. They didn't ask the customer, what do you want? They said, this is what you want. And we're putting this out there on the streets and you will take the drug that we have in mass quantity. So it's incredibly in- interesting how they shifted the market. The story you you alluded to, uh, June 1st, 2017 in the Courier Journal, the headline, the last words of a heroin junkie, there seems to be no escape. Your lead was Adam Cooley died mid-sentence. The young man couldn't have known the danger as he reclined in, the, in bed at his parents' Pleasure Ridge Park home, writing a thank you note to a family friend. On the eve of what was to be a long rehabilitation stay and hopefully a final lifeline, the longtime heroin user did what many addicts do. He went on one last bender, but this time in what would be the 27-year-old's last snort, something more potent and much more dangerous was hidden inside. About an hour before his parents were set to drive their youngest son to treatment center in Campbellsville, they found his body cold and still. A pen and sheet of white paper lay nearby, but his strength and his last words ended there. Adam Cooley lost his six-year battle with heroin that morning. First of all, that's fucking great. Like, that's great. I actually forgot, Beth, how good of a writer you are. Like, that's freaking great. Second of all, thank you. Wait, second of all, I love how you asked me, can I curse on this podcast? And then you say hell. That actually reminds me of being in Nashville when hell and pissed off were deemed curses. And I was like, oh, I just thought those were parts of the the regular language. And third, all right, so it's 2017. You're assigned this story on Adam Cooley. To you at the time, is this just a story? Like, did you not know at the moment that this thing was going to lead to the next X number of years you covering drugs? Um, yeah, let me take you back in time for a minute. Um, actually, what happened is I was helping cover the opioid crisis. Like, it was never planned. Nobody asked me to cover the crisis. I just realized it was the this the reporter on that crisis she was being inundated like there was no way to keep up because there was um kentucky's also like a home base u of uk university of kentucky there they were like pioneers in, in developing some of the neural uh naloxone treatments that it's an antidote for the for when people overdose it also they also develop like injectable time release injectable buprenorphine so she was basically, it was an onslaught. She was like drowning. Like there was no way to cover all the stuff that was going on. And it was, it was like a four alarm fire in my mind. So I didn't even ask. I just jumped in and it made it my beat. Nobody, I just did it. And then so she and I were doing it together. And then we were trying to find as many ways to um, debunk the thoughts that it's a choice, you know, because for a lot of people, it is, it's a brain disease. And then a lot of people got hooked on drugs because they were following the doctor's orders for um, pain medicine and stuff like that. So we were trying to humanize, you know, people who are struggling so that people, your average person would actually care and try to do something about it. And um, we were also trying to, to show, like we did two forums and help teach people how to do naloxone and stuff like that. And we were trying, so we were on this like mission, I would say. And I went, started, I asked this, I actually got a letter from a mom who was kind of mad at me. She was like, you're not writing about it from the parents' perspective. We go through a lot, you know, and you're not even including that perspective. So she was kind of giving me an ass chewing, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But I called her to talk to her and I said, you know, you're right. I'm not. I have not had that perspective in our coverage. Would you be willing to help me correct that? And so she said I could start coming to support group meetings with her. It's Narcan is what it's called. 
and it's Narcotics Anonymous. Um, I'm sorry, it's Naranon, and it's for relatives that have um, of loved ones who are struggling with drug addiction. So it's a little different than it's not than Al-Anon. It's kind of similar to Al-Anon, but it's for narcotics. So I started going to um, those meetings like a support group, and then I just got I locked in on this family, the Cooleys. They just seemed like they reminded me of my mom and dad, to be honest. Um, and they were doing everything they could to save their son. And so I talked to the, their son. He was in rehab. And I asked him, can I do the story? Are you okay if I do the story about you? But it's from your parents' perspective. I'm not even going to interview you. I'm doing it from their perspective. And he says, yes. you know. And so basically, my first story was on the parents, their attempts to try to save their son. Um, and I thought one and done, it's this one story. I move on to something else. Right. Mm -hmm. But he ended up dying. And then the family called me and told me, and then I went to the funeral and we're supposed to stay objective. Um, but I was in the back and I cried like a little baby because his words were so powerful. Um, and I'd never understood, um, really, from a person who's in that world struggling. I had talked to many people who are struggling with addiction, but to hear his words were so uh, powerful that it, it stopped me in my tracks. And I was like, we have to do this story. So I asked the parents and they agreed for us to do a follow-up story basically on from their son's perspective using his writing. And, um, and now I, once again, I thought, Okay, two and done. Two stories and we're done on this family. Move on to someone else, to something else. Um, but then, of course, what happened is it just snowballed, you know, and it just took me on a journey. I didn't plan to chart this path. It just kind of happened. Let me ask you a question. When you write about grief, like you uh, in the Cooley story, you wrote, uh, after Adam's death, the Cooleys chose to share their grief and hope someone else can learn from their deepest hurt. This time, they're aided by their son's own words. And you wrote, the, the morning Adam died, Carl and Brenda woke up hopeful, showered and sipped coffee. Finally, they thought their son seemed eager for rehab. Carl went to roust him out of bed. He tapped Adam's arm, but Adam didn't respond. His skin was cold. I think he's dead, Carl shouted to his wife still in the kitchen. Carl leaned over to his youngest son and pressed up and down in Adam's chest, trying to restart his heart. So when you're writing about something this personal, this graphic, this haunting, um, how, this is going to sound like a basic dumb, dumb question, but I think a lot of people don't know. Like, how do you get details from people? Like if you're asking them about the night, the morning their son died, how do you get them to tell you I was drinking coffee? I pressed his chest. I did this. I did that. How do you sort of get those details out of people? Uh, I spent a lot of time with them and got them comfortable with me, I guess, you know, and um, it took many interviews. You know, I went, I went to the house they showed me where it happened and they kind of asked them just to take me through that day. And, you know, I talk a lot, Jeffrey, but I try to just be quiet and let them tell me. And I even said, you know, I'm not going to ask you a lot of questions I, so that they wouldn't think it was weird. I wasn't talking. I said, I just want you to talk, you to tell me, take me through your day. And then they kind of just reenacted and, or not, you know, they didn't reenact, but they, in their minds, they were going through replaying and, and giving me the detail. Um, it also took several interviews, you know, to get a story where you're going to tell a narrative like that. This is something I've never asked anyone. So this is great. 
you're a chatty person. You like to chat. Nothing wrong with that. Generally, as a journalist, you do have to listen more than you talk, right? So if your natural inclination is to be chatty or with friends, you like to chat, blah, blah, blah. Do you almost have to remind yourself when you're doing certain interviews? You know, I don't know. Like, this is not a time for me to be chatty. Yeah, and I also have... I don't know if this is Southern or just who I am, but I do have a tendency. Like if I see on your face that you're struggling or you're in pain, I'm going to try to help. You know what I mean? And what I need to do is just be quiet and let them work through it. And so I find it good um, to tell them, you know, that I'm not going to say a lot. I'm just going to listen. And I want you to tell me and take your time. So that that way they're not waiting to take cues from me. That way they're not waiting for me to say, oh, goodness, or I understand. They're not waiting for me to do anything. They know I'm just giving them room to breathe and take their time. And that helps. Um, you know, I don't do that in stories where I it's a, it's a hard investigation. You're pressing people. You know, this is a different type of story. But on this kinds of stories, yeah, I have to give them that room and I have to just kind of pinch myself and say, you know, don't fill in the silences with my comments. You know, I just need to kind of keep it. Yeah. And that, and that can be challenging for me, but, um, you know, like if they start crying, I'm going to want to comfort them, but I just have to just leave it alone. You know, it's, it is hard, but it's, you just get, you're going to get more honesty that way. If they're just, if you try to almost be the fly on the wall and just let them, you know, drive. Wait, a really interesting point is um, in human conversation, like day-to-day non-journalistic conversation, our natural instinct is to fill in the gaps of silence. Someone stops talking. We don't sit there quietly for five seconds. We, we immediately talk. And in journalism, we have to do the exact opposite thing. The silence is oftentimes really telling and really important. That's a trick. Like that's not an easy thing to do to just let it sit there. No. Oh, are you kidding me? I'm still learning that. Um, silence is not my strong suit. I think you know that. I, I talk way too much. Got the gift of God from my dad. But yeah, um, no, I mean, especially if I feel like somebody's struggling, I don't want them to struggle. I don't want to cause somebody pain. So I, I'm apt to try to rescue them in a way. But, you know, I've learned, you know, I have to not fight that inclination in a story like this. In 2019, you wrote uh, you wrote this lengthy, like you guys did a whole package, but it started, the headline is a ruthless Mexican drug lord's empire is devastating families with its grip on small town USA. And the lead you wrote was somewhere deep in Mexico's remote wilderness, the world's most dangerous and wanted drug lord is hiding. If someone you love dies from an overdose tonight, he may well very be to blame. He's called El Mencho. And though few Americans know his name, authorities promise they soon will. And you've basically, since 2019, been writing a shitload about El Mencho and the cartel. And I was telling my wife about this interview before I started. And she said, that sounds really dangerous. Um, <laughs> that sounds really dangerous, Beth. Is it? I, I worry more about my coworkers in Mexico, to be honest. Um, you know, we have a reporter and a photographer, Christopher um, Rogel, who's in, and uh, Carol Suarez that are in Mexico. I worry more about them, honestly, but, um, you know, like 
when I went to Mexico to do the work, I was with the DEA most of the time. And then um, they thought I was going to be with them the whole time. And then I waited until we were at the airport. I'm like, well, um, I'm not going to be coming back with you guys. <laughs> uh, we did get lost going to uh, interview some cartel victims. And, you know, I honestly didn't understand how dangerous it was until we got back to the hotel and the, the, um, photographer and reporter who are from Mexico ordered a stiff drink to celebrate that we got back safely, which I'm like, huh, I guess that was more dicey than I realized. Sometimes ignorance is bliss, but I mean, we just take uh, precautions and um, I feel like it's much more dangerous for them. And to be honest, like um, I had a gun pulled on me in Robertson County, like the, when we were young, you know, like, when I was writing about gangs um, in a suburb of Nashville. So, I mean, the truth is you can get in danger, you know, you can get into a sticky situation anywhere. And the bulk of my career has been covering murders and gangs and all kinds of stuff like that. So, you know, I've been threatened by drug dealers and I've, you know, been threatened by a pimp. I mean, I've had all kinds of stuff. Like, like I said, accidentally stumbled into a crack house. I mean, I had a lot of little, I would say near misses my whole career, but um, we just are careful what we do. And the Mexico is one of the most dangerous places for reporters right now. But I would say the Mexican journalist for Mexican papers, like there, they report on the cartel every day. There's, there's multiple stories on cartels every day. They follow it almost like a football game, Jeff. It's like this cartel did this again, and then and then how that's going to affect the strategy. It's really you know much more intense than here. And they're outing people, you know, like Jeffrey Perlman has been verified as a member of you know the cartel. Like they're outing people, so I think that makes it much more dangerous. Uh, we're not really doing that. We're giving more of a helicopter view for Americans. So I don't feel like we're in as much danger, but. Of course, we try to take, you know, precautions and stuff. Wait, so everyone bemoans. I'm sure you do. I certainly do. The sort of decline of a local journalism be the money in journalism. And here's a paper in Louisville, the Courier Journal, that's obviously putting a shitload of time, energy, resources into covering drug cartels. Um, and obviously you're teaming up with with journalists in Mexico as well. How are you guys able to do this? Um, it's a grant that um that is allowing it right now so does a newspaper apply for a grant to cover something did you apply personally for a grant how did that work actually it was the reverse um i guess the right people saw this the package we put out in 2019 and reached out to us so it was just a blessing it was just one of those things that fell into place all right some important questions what's the story of having a gun pulled out on you um, yeah, my editors at the Tennessean told me not to go because I was writing about gangs, you know, and my gangs that had been threatening the police and local officials in Springfield. And my philosophy was my college did not prepare me, did not have a gang 101 course. Uh -huh. So the only way I'm going to learn about gangs, I'm not going to learn about gangs sitting in a newsroom. So I was determined to go, you know, where the threat was, <laughs> even though I'd been told not to. So I, uh, I lassoed some poor guy into going with me, which I felt really bad for him later, honestly. But um, 
we went and I was trying to talk to people hanging out in the area where the threats had happened. And I actually found a woman who was willing to talk to me. And then I guess the guy didn't want her talking. So he went over to his car and the window was down. He reached in the car and pulled out a long gun. Like a, I think it was like a, it was like a 20 gauge or something. And he just like, it was one of those things where it's like, you know, like he has to chamber the round uh-huh. with this action, you know, and he just like chambered the round and pointed the gun at me. So I was like, oh, I guess this guy does not want to talk. So we just like the guy I was with was about to piss his pants. He was like freaking out. And I was just like, I just like try to act calm, you know, and I just finished my sentence. I acted like, you know, somebody pulls a gun on me every day. Like it's no big deal. You know, I was trying to be calm. And keep the situation calm. And so then I just finished my sentence and just quietly walked over to the car. But don't get me wrong. Like the whole way home, my hands were shaking because, you know, I knew I could get a bullet to the back or something, you know. So it was definitely scary. But it was one of those things where I was always determined to get in the field as much as I could because the story doesn't lurk in the newsroom. You know, Dwight Lewis used to tell us that the story is not going to come bite us in the ass. We got to chase after it, you know. What happened with the crowd? How do you wind up at a crack house? Um, that was just me being a total idiot, you know, cause I am a klutzy person. Like I always want to be more Grace Kelly, but I'm more Lucille Ball. You know, it's just life. That's just me. I'm going to have to deal with that. Right. Yeah. So like, um, the cops had raided this crack house, a couple of crack houses actually. And I was trying to get more details, but they were ready to roll from the scene. And they're like, we're going and you need to get out of here. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Okay. And so I just pretended to go to my car. Cause you know, I didn't have the story yet. So I pretended to go to my car and when the cops pull off, I'm like, I got back out and I was going to go talk to the neighbors, but I misunderstood which house the cops pointed to. So instead of going to the neighbors, I actually went to the effing crack house, like a total idiot. I mean, I guess I should have had a clue when the guy was drinking a big tall boy at 10 AM in the morning, you know, it was just a dumbass thing. I did a bunch of stupid stuff like that when I was young. Well, I mean, I still do stupid stuff to be honest. I just have, my absent-minded moments. Are you more fearless or clueless? <laughs> I'm a little of both. I mean, I'm always been a little gritty. Like, I'm always going to claw and fight for the story, I guess. But yeah, I am a little, I'm, I'm a little absent-minded. It's just part of it, you know. But yeah, I mean, you know what it is. It's like, I think you have the same drive I do, Jeff. It's like that you're always going to chase that story. You know, you're not going to let your bosses tell you the parameters for that. And I was never going to be content reading documents and talking to cops. You know, I had to get out in the field, you know, and sometimes that's dangerous because you're in crime riddled areas. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who is very angry about the results of the VMA Awards. I am never leaving my room again. Never. Don't worry, Casey. 17 will get another chance next year. Not as best new artist, Dad. We only have one shot. I'm devastated. You know, I spoke with Ming Yu and Jung Han and Hoshi and Wan Wu and DK and The Eight and Joshua and June and S. Coops and Woozy and Vernon and Sung Kwan. What about Dino? Did you talk to Dino? Yeah, yeah. I talked to Dino, too. And I told them I was going to go to RoyalRetros.com and order them all throwback USFL jerseys, stitched, vintage, retro. And even though it was just over the phone, I could tell they were smiling. Because now, thanks to the kings of throwback merchandise, they're winners too. Wow, Dad, you're the best. 
No, honey. Duff Cameron is the best. That's a low blow. I just want to say your career real quick. You started the Tennessean. You're there from 92 to 2000. Then you went to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, 2000-2008. Then you were at the Commercial Appeal in Memphis. And now you're in Louisville. When you and I came up, it was a goal to be a lifelong newspaper grinder and to have a long career in journalism. And then newspapers started taking real hits. And most of my peers and probably most of your peers who we came up with sort of vanished off the scene. You know, oh, yeah. How have you not lost hope in newspaper? I didn't say I haven't. <laughs> um, I would say I'm just incredibly stubborn, like a very stubborn person. I mean, sometimes I've survived layoffs probably by, you know, digging my claws at the end of the cliff and hoping I don't get rattled off like everybody else, you know. I'm sure there's been close calls, but I've just been, you know, blessed to not have been one of the ones laid off. So, but it does start to feel like I got the Christie and then there were none, you know, like 10, there was, then there was nine, then there's eight. It does start to feel a little like that. And I'm sure you understand that, but um, I just love doing this. And I guess I'm just so stubborn. I'm going to try to do it as long as I can. You know, I don't know. I get paid to be curious. I get paid to be a geek. And I remember when we were young and you were like, we get paid to write. You were just so excited. You're like, can you believe we get paid to write? I mean, and that's how I feel like I get to be, I get paid to be curious. You know, I was born a little curious creature. I was asking my my poor dad, I asked him why about a million times about everything. Like my brother would just be content, but I always wanted to know more about any subject, you know, drove them crazy so i mean to find somebody who's willing to pay me for that is pretty badass you know so it's hard to give that up wait that's so well said i always tell young journalists like the number one thing is this curiosity in other people not having the impulse to talk about yourself first that you'd rather hear someone else tell their story yeah all right i have a question for you you've covered drugs you've covered drugs you've covered drugs opioids have obviously become a big problem in america it's a story that's covered extensively And I may be off on this, so tell me if I'm off on this. I feel like, and I'm not accusing you of anything, I'm just saying we. um, When drugs affect predominantly African-American communities, they are not covered nearly as much as if it's a crisis that's affecting white kids in suburbia. Is that me misreading America's drug coverage? No, I think you're right. Um, I think... Because if you try to, if you, if you're trying to compare like the crack epidemic from the eighties, like the height of the crack epidemic in the eighties to what's going on with the opioids now, yes, I think there is a big disparity. And I think part of a big part of that is racially driven because lawmakers, police, their policies, their approach and journalists, I think all of us bear responsibility in that. Yeah. Now they're seeing it as a brain disease. It's always been a brain disease, but now we're because it affects like the senator's son and yes, people in the newsrooms, relatives and the cop's brother and whatever. I think now because it's affecting so many people that more people are willing to look at it in a different light. I don't think it's total race driven, but I think it is largely race driven the disparity when this is your beat, do you have to be aware of that yourself? Like, do you, I don't know. Do you have to remind yourself 
the potholes of coverage and sort of a way to cover this fairly and to not succumb to journalistic cliches and tropes that maybe drug coverage has lent itself to through the years? I honestly feel like we're doing it better now. I think the past, it was what was the racial disparities drove us to oversimplify, including myself, where we would focus on vilify the person who's struggling with the addiction. Um, And so I think now we're getting it right. But, um, you know, where we're seeing people as, you know, men and women, human people, fallible people, we're all fallible. So we're seeing them as people who are struggling and we're seeing it through more of a compassionate lens than we used to. So I feel like it's more like correcting the things we did wrong in the past. It's interesting. I'm writing about someone whose dad was a, was a crack addict and this is 20 years ago. And when you read about it, he was always referred to as a crackhead as a crackhead. And I used to use that term too. I would think crackhead like, it's so freaking mean to dismiss someone as a crackhead. You know what I mean? Like there's just a lot of stuff that was so cruel about the way we thought about drug addiction. Like it's a disease. It's not a joke that some guy's addicted to crack. It just actually breaks my heart in hindsight, you know? Oh, a hundred percent, Jeff and I, in hindsight, I would have written things differently in the past, you know, like 20 years ago. I feel like we didn't understand. I didn't understand. I didn't have the knowledge to understand how big the disparities were, but yeah, I feel like that's one of those things um, that we're all more aware of now. And I think the dialogue has shifted to try to look at, you know, how you treat somebody like for instance, drug courts that you can try that you can try to get the person into treatment. And like, I was just in West Virginia trailing behind the drugs are and, uh, we were in um, following along with this team that if somebody overdoses, but they don't die, this team engages with them to try to get them into treatment and includes the police department. So that's something you never would have seen during the crack epidemic. So it's like everybody is invested, even the DEA, like everybody is invested in trying to save lives. It just took all of us too long to get here, though. Let me ask you a final question. You and I came up at the Tennessean and when we worked there, 1100 Broadway, it was this grand building and there were two newspapers, the National Tennessean on the top, the National Banner on the bottom. They were rival papers. One came out in the morning, one came out in the afternoon. Um, It was exciting and enticing and you just wanted to be great and blah, 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 blah. Now the Tennessean is in a tiny office I'm sure most of the writers work from home. Probably most of the writers never even go into the office. Um, do you still have faith in journalism? Is there still, is there a way where we can come back and maybe not recapture what was, but still maintain and still matter and still thrive in a very strange world? I don't know. God damn it, Beth. What the hell? I hate to say that. Um, I mean, I could give you some bullshit right now, but if you want me to keep it real, I do. The, um, where we were, Jeff, where I feel like I was half raised at the Tennessean, the um, is it is a whole, literally a whole rubble. It is rubble. It has been demolished, and there is a Whole Foods part, 
where part of it was and the other part is just this hole and I have thought about going and standing there at the hole and just looking and I feel like I would love to do it in the dark and just go there and stand there and just cry which I know is so cheesy but I mean I feel like it's like a morning of what was but that also makes me sound like a grumpy old man on a porch so I don't know but I mean, yeah, it is sad what it was versus what is. But I mean, we also have to pivot. So I don't know. I guess I'm torn. Um, I am surprised to see 20-year-olds majoring in journalism. Don't know what the future will be. I do feel like, you know, it's important. I think it's so important. Like we are giving people a voice, you know, um, that otherwise wouldn't have a voice, people who are marginalized, people who um, they don't even know how to have their voice to help them find it. So I don't know. I feel like it would be really sad if we lose that. Um, but am I confident we won't lose that? No, sorry. If you wanted this to end on a happy, warm, fuzzy note, it's, I can't make that happen. Wait, I'm going to pivot here, though. You and I, like... We came up, we came up together, Tennessean. And like, I think you and I would both still maintain, like, I think the reason people still go into journalism is because it's freaking great. Like, I know it's hard and I know places are closing and it's not what it was. And it's not easy, but like, I don't, I still freaking love it. Like, I love it. I've never regretted this career choice. I've never looked at someone doing a different job and thought, I wish I were doing that job. So maybe that's it. Like, it's harder it's it's rough layoffs, blah, blah, blah. But I think if I'm 21 years old and I'm in college, I still want to do this job. Don't you? Yeah, probably because I have more piss and vinegar than sense. Glory days at the Tennessean holiday parties at the Vanderbilt Hotel uh, budget to fly people places. I remember being in I remember sitting there every month. Frank Sutherland, the editor, would do his like awards and it would be the whole newsroom would gather and he would do awards for like the best lead, the best headline. And he would hand a mug. Everyone would get a mug. And I remember just being like giddy when I received a mug because it felt like it just felt big. Everything about being there felt big to me, you know, and like glorious and important. And the TVs would always be going. You could walk down and see the newspapers being printed in the press downstairs. And I still freaking smell the ink. Smell the ink. It would get, and if you put it, if you hold it against your white shirt, it, it would get all, it would smear gray all over your shirt and stuff. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think if you cut, cut us open, we would be bleeding ink. It's just in our blood. And yeah, I'm jealous of my friends who make a lot more money and have bonuses and long vacations and that shit. But I mean, I just feel like this is just me. This is where I'm meant to be. This is what I'm supposed to do. And I'm going to fight until the end to keep doing it. Isn't that true? And I actually think that's currency. Like you will always have your story of going into a crack den, of having a guy pull a gun on you, uncovering cartels, of sitting across from parents as they're telling you about their lost son. That's a hell of a lot better than working at a law firm for 40 years. Yeah. I don't know if anybody really cares to hear at a party to hear about <laughs> the kind of stuff I write about. It's a little intense. I do. But yeah, I think I would always rather be poor than bored. Being bored would be the death of me, like a death sentence. Yep. And yeah, you're never bored in this job. Like I was probably bored one day of my career and that was the day I wasn't getting off my ass and doing what I needed to be doing. Because when you're chasing stories, you're not bored. 
Well, Beth, for, I got to say, first of all, thank you for doing this. And um, it like warms my heart that we came up together. We were at this paper together. We were young journalists and you're still freaking doing it and you're still bringing it and you're doing really important work. I like that we've survived in this business together. You deserve it. And I'm happy for you. Thank you, Beth. I feel the same. I want to thank today's guest, Beth Warren, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Beth on Twitter at BethWarrenCJ and read her work at thecourier-journal.com. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money for doing this podcast, and I rely on word of mouth. Also, my next book, The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson, drops October 25th, but is available for pre-order now. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.